Welcome to the Glindborn podcast. I'm Katie Derham, and in this episode, I'm joined by the novelist Kate Moss, author of the multi-million selling Longer Doc trilogy and a major new historical series which starts with The Burning Chambers. The music of Debussy has been a lifelong passion for Kate. Indeed, the composer is an offstage character in the second book of the Languedoc trilogy, Sepulchre. In this podcast, I'm going to be chatting to Kate about her love for Debussy and, specifically, her love for his opera Bellias et Melisande, which is being given a new production at the Glyndebourne Festival in summer 2018. Pelias et Melisande is a timeless story of love and jealousy. Out hunting in the forest one day, Prince Golo meets the mysterious Melisande, and he falls instantly in love and brings her home to the castle of Alamande as his bride. But his half-brother Pelias also falls for Melisande's charms, resulting in a passionate love triangle that unfolds through glimpses and glances building to its tragic conclusion. So, thank you for joining me, and I do hope you enjoy my conversation with Kate Moss. So, Kate Moss, Debussy is obviously something of a passion, nay, obsession of yours. Why? I think uh, when I was a teenager and I played the violin and the piano... And I was always a little bit snobby about piano music and it was partly because I was always being played Liszt and Brahms and actually Chopin and all obviously wonderful and I was too young to understand how brilliant. But they all seemed a bit blousy to me and about a bit big, you know, and you needed Mm. big hands actually to cope with them. And then, like many young people, I heard, I suspect it was L'après-midi d'une fun, I can't remember now. Um, And Debussy suddenly... Music was different for me because of that. And it was the understanding that you could, through notes on a score, actually speak deeply to emotion. So the mistiness of a day or the haze, the summer haze through the trees, um, the fact that a note on a piano could be as precise and perfect as any word written down. And so... He really did change how I saw music and it's never gone away, that sense, that if ever I need to just be calm or relax or be taken somewhere else, it's always a piece of Debussy I would put on to listen to. And as a character, his life was interesting. It was good fodder for a novel, wasn't it, actually? It's one of those interesting things, isn't it, with artists that you really admire. It's sometimes a dangerous thing to discover the person that they mm. might have been. And whenever you start to read a lot of biographies of Debussy or you go into his letters or whatever, he does come across as rather self-obsessed, very, very difficult. People talk about the time that nobody really likes him. He was a right old rogue in terms of his relationships with women. Um, but it was one of those things that as I've got older, I realise you just separate the work from the person up to a point. But when I started to write Sepulchre, which is the second of my Longer Doc trilogy, I thought he would be an on-stage character. But what I learned through that was that because he's a real person and in my mind he exists as himself, I didn't feel comfortable animating him as a made-up person with my made-up people. Um, So, in fact, he never comes on. He is in the background of 1891, uh, the world of Paris. He is 
the sound, the piano behind the wall of the flat where my characters live, um, in near the Parc Monceau. You know, it's very funny that years later that Debussy taught me that, that actually I don't want to put real historical characters on the page. I want to put imaginary characters in front of a real historical backdrop. And I learned that because I thought, oh, Claude, I, I just can't do it. I can't do it. You, you are who you are. <laughs> Going back to the music of Debussy, and you say that you turn to him in moments of uh, seeking calm and reflection and, you know, de-stressing from <laughs> all of our busy lives. Which particular pieces are you drawn to now? Is it still the ones that first attracted you when you were a teenager? Yes and no. I I think as I, um, as I listen now, there were certain very... I suppose, famous pieces of Debussy that everybody knew, you know, so Claire de Lune, you know, all, all of those things. And then, of course, you have that... Um, it's almost an arrogance, I suppose, where you want to prove that you know more about Debussy than that. So, therefore, you start to have very obscure pieces from the Suite Bergamasque or the Preludes or, and you know, the orchestral suites in order to prove that you're not just somebody who heard that one, that one piece of music. But now when I go back, there are... I think there are in Sweet Bergamasque, uh, you know, mm. for example, the piece uh, Passepied, mm. um, which is sort of, a, you know, stately, French stately court dance, but the precision of the, you know, it's almost like tiptoeing, the, the piano is tiptoeing. Within the preludes, some of the, uh, particularly in book one, I suppose, the sunken cathedral, la cathedrale engloutie, and actually the girl with the flaxen hair, those favourites. But I, I also love the the ones I think of as more mystical, sort of the image, the ones that are often fog or snow or light, you know, the liminal light at the beginning and the end of the days, uh, the idea, you know, the beautiful image, which is simply called long, slow, which is just this incredible, ponderous sort of sense of time and space. And although it is absolutely precise, there is also an imprecision in that wonderful way of Debussy, the sort of the tonality and the atonality, the parallel chords, the way that it is both completely linked to time and metre, but also seems to be free of it. And I just don't really know, for me still, there is no other composer that can achieve opposite things in his music or her music at the same time. Um, and I suppose also... I don't play anymore. Um, you know, I was a better pianist when I was 18 when I thought I would go to music college than I have ever been since. And I'm no longer capable of playing Debussy well. So now I'm only a listener. And therefore, I just go back and every time hear something slightly, slightly new in some of those pieces. Do you think that the way you so beautifully describe his music has influenced the way you write? Yes, it has, in a way, in that... I often have blurred edges in my stories, um, not just um, my historical fiction, but particularly my ghost stories, I suppose. And what I mean by that is that they're very rooted in time. So my new series of books is about the Huguenot Catholic conflict in France from the 16th century onwards. But at the same time, we all know history never starts on the day that we say it does. And that is exactly, I think, what Debussy does in his compositions, is that the notes on the score are the notes on the score, but the shimmer that goes out from it, the mistiness that goes out from it, is like taking a razor to the black lines around it and, and, and scrubbing it out. And I think that's 
a huge influence on me in terms of how I write, particularly since so much of what I write is based on place. And if you're in the mountains of southwest France, they are utterly different depending on the time of day and the season. And for me, Debussy is exactly that, a seasonal writer, that the same note heard at six in the morning to nine in the morning to ten at night it's not quite the same note and that's that beautiful imprecision that is is so unique to him I think. And in a way that was what caused him so much grief when he was trying to write an opera because he didn't want to be tied down to a, a text to a libretto did he? No and you know I, I came to Debussy as a teenager as a would-be player. But one of the things I love about Debussy, as I've, I got to know more about him, of course, is that he lived absolutely uh, hand-in-glove with writers. So many of his most important friends and his most important inspirations, whether it's Malamé or, of course, Maitre or Baudelaire or, of course, Poe. Um, so he always worked very closely with text and other writers and admired the creativity in other spheres. You know, he'd approached Metalink in the 1890s saying, please, may I use one of your plays? And Metalink had said, no. And then he tried him again a couple of years later, 1893, and this time Metalink said, OK, you can have a go at uh, Pelias et Melisande, which, of course, a big, great, important symbolist play of the time. But, of course, in a way, there the trouble started. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yes, because at first they got on terribly well, didn't they? And it was a real meeting of minds, but it all went horribly wrong. It went horribly wrong. It, it, the question is, did it go horribly wrong for creative reasons or personal reasons? It is impossible when you read Debussy's personal life with the succession of affairs he had, the, the, the way that he treated the women in his life. The only woman in his life he ever treated properly was his daughter, who he clearly adored. He, you know, it is said that Metterling expected his mistress to have the, the role of uh, Melisande. And indeed, Debussy seems to have agreed to that and then totally changed his mind and said it will go to the Scottish singer Mary Garden. And that was it for their relationship. It never recovered. So I'm not sure it was creative differences that caused the you know, the chasm between them, rather than yet again sex raising its ugly head, which is ironic when you look at the, the story of, of the play and the opera. But I think that you can tell when you listen to any, particularly of his piano pieces, more than the orchestral or the opera, the perfectionism that comes through Debussy, which is only that note will do. Only this collection of notes in this chord placed next to that chord will do. So that perfectionism means that once he was embarked upon writing Pelias, it had to be perfect and had to be ready. And if that meant his relationship with the author of the piece collapsing because he wanted this Scottish singer, then so be it. He would never have compromised that, in my opinion, from what I've read of his letters. But also you can understand as well, perhaps, how he must have struggled with, OK, that's the way I want the music to sound, and if it doesn't quite fit with the story, then that would have been the most... Yeah. It must have given them almost physical pain. <laughs> yes, yes. But you see, that's what's so, for me, so extraordinary about Pelias and Melisande as an opera. You know, it is the only opera um, that Debussy wrote there was still, and maybe still is, a snobbery about opera as the highest of the creative compositional art forms. And Debussy really wanted to, in modern language, nail that. You yes, know. but he loved Wagner, didn't he? He loved yes. Wagner, yeah. and uh, and he was quite dismissive of other operatic composers, shall we say. Um, but what is so different, I think, about Pelias is that we know that life is messy. 
we're we're living at the moment in a time of what is always being called fake news and is this true, is that true, there's no such thing as fact. Well, we all in our hearts know that that's rubbish, but we also know that there is an element of whose side of the story are you hearing. Now, of course, in a story like Pelias, well, whose side of the story are we hearing? And so, oddly, I would say that what had been missing from opera was... The grey area. Yes, the blurred edges again. The blurred edges. Yeah. You know, it's always light and dark. You know, he did this, she did that, bam, it's all catastrophic, Mm. that's the end of it. You know, opera for me, up until that point, and I am a big Wagner fan and the overture to Parsifal will, you know, always be on my desert island disc, you know, but it's very binary. Whereas what Debussy did with Pelias and, of course, a symbolist play, you know, it's the right text for that, was say, well, you know, life isn't quite so black and white and it doesn't have to be an opera either. And that's why, for me, it's such an important piece of work. We've already talked about the fact that uh, the the singers who played Melisande caused a certain amount of controversy in the early uh, early days of this opera. She's an interesting character, ambiguous again. Um, is she innocent? Is she childlike? Is she more knowing? What Do you sort of have a view on this? When I first ever heard the opera, I think I responded to it as one would to any piece of gothic fiction, really, which is that there is the idea of this innocent heroine um, who um, is childlike and is, is is almost underneath it. It's a very insidious idea. It's the idea that is too good for this world. Um, but as I've got older and I've thought more <laughs> about things... I think that it is actually a much darker story than even I had felt. So what do we know? We know that uh, Melisande is kind of discovered and brought back to the kingdom of Alamond. She's she's a child, probably 18, 19, 20. She's certainly not a grown-up, should we say. She's a, a wandering, unclaimed person and is married, off. So this is already a traumatised person with no history. We know that she's in the woods and the darkness and everything about Pagliese Melisande is about light and dark and the opposites and that she looks out and she hears the gulls and she clearly has come from the sea and there is a sense of the freedom of the ship on the sea and the openness of the light and the skies there as against the forest and the darkness and the well and the blind man's well, you know, the the seeing and the unseeing. And then... We know, because we witness it, that her husband is violent. So she is in a domestically violent situation. So the question is, when we listen to it as an opera and the beauty of the opera, is she knowingly wanting to be a lover with Pelias? Or is she looking to be saved? Mm. Is she looking to be rescued? Does she even know? And I would... I would say that within the five acts, and again, you know, five acts is really, that's quite unusual and specific in the way that it plays out, that she's a slightly different person in each of those acts, not just on a journey, as we would say, <laughs> but she's not quite the same character in different acts. And I, and I wonder if the period of time over which Debussy wrote it, that he changed her mind about who she was as he was writing. So... I still don't know. I mean, obviously, I'm on her side. (laughs) Obviously, you know. Um, But what was really going on between her and Pelias? Was Pelias really coming to say goodbye? Is he the knight in shining armour or is he the catalyst for the 
catastrophe. Yes, taking advantage as well. Yeah, exactly. When you're listening to the opera, are there any particular moments which just are utter highlights or you're swept away by? What would those moments be? When I listen to Pelias Emelison now, the music that most appealed to me when I was younger, which actually I realise is mostly to do just with her and reflection. So when she's sitting, you know, combing her hair and then Pelias is down below. Um, some, so some of those, as I think of the misty moments, were the ones that mostly spoke to me. Now I think um, the ones that speak to me are the the moments before the big moments of climax, because I now can see that the cleverness in the way that Debussy builds up to the moment of crisis is exactly what he does in, you know, book one and two of the preludes, that there are tiny bits of music and then it builds, or something like, you know, in La Cathedral Anglity, where it's this tiny thing under the water and then as the cathedral comes up, you have this huge rolling left hand from the piano. So with the opera, the moment at which... I suppose the moment of which, which is the most operatic moment, when they are at the well for the first time, the blind man's well, Peleus and Melisson, and the ring falls down the well. You feel the music is taking you down and down into the dark and the wet. And it's, it sums up the entire opera, in a way. They are aware of what they feel for each other, but it is nonetheless innocent and pure. But the symbol of ownership, the ring... Uh, that is also going to lead to the moment of violence between Pelias and her husband and actually the subsequent murder. Everything is contained in that. As the ring goes from the glinting in the light down to the shadow of the well and then to the dank hell... That, for me is one of the great pieces of it, because it's not even a theme, really. But actually, that is what Debussy can do, tell the entire story in about 12 bars. Incredible. And, of course, it ends messily, as operas always do, and slightly, again, slightly ambiguously in some respects, um, with Melisande having given birth to a daughter and then dying. And, of course, you have imagined how the story may then have continued uh, uh, and you created this new life for the daughter. So tell me a bit about that. How did you imagine her? There was um, a wonderful publishing project um, edited by um, the great writer Jeanette Winterson uh, for the 75th anniversary of Glyndebourne when we were all asked to just take one of our favourite operas and write a story inspired by it. And so I took Pelias and Melisande and imagined who that baby, that child, could have been. All we know at the end of Pelias is that 
Melisande is, all of her life is drained away, even before she's taken her last breath, you know, before the soul takes flight. She can't even hold her child, but we know it's daughter. And so then you think of the history within that castle and what life might have been like for that unmothered girl, who is the daughter of an unmothered girl, um, the half-brother who had been forced to spy upon Melisande, mm-hmm. um, the the father who had murdered Pelias, um, all of these stories. And so I started to think, OK, what sort of child would she be? Well, if you believe that all children are a product, both of their environment, but also the genes that made them, then I started to think, well, Miette, as I called her, she would have maybe the grace and the intelligence of Melisande, because it... Melisande is clearly a very clever person, even though she's very troubled. But her father is... He's a tyrant, and he's also purposeful and active. So out of that came the idea of what would that girl have done? Who could she have been? And so I tried to imagine her 18 years living in that castle in the shadow of a dead mother, and then what she might do when she came of age. Now, of course... I have that as 18. We know that um, within the sort of faux medieval world of opera, in uh, certain operas, and indeed in in reality until um, sort of the 19th century, coming of age was, uh, the age of consent was 12 uh, for a very, very long time. But in my mind, obviously in modern world, she's 18. And so I had a thought of on her 18th birthday, who is that young woman and what does she do to mark her 18th birthday? Go on, tell us. Well, she kills her father, obviously. It's an <laughs> obviously. opera. <laughs> obviously. She's bided her time. She's a sort of sleeping, sleeping um, assassin. Um, yeah, she... she um, that that's what I felt, and I also I think it's that wonderful thing, as a not not a tribute to Debussy because he's a genius and he needs no tributes from anybody else, um, but I do think that Pelias and Melisande changed the narrative of opera in a way, uh, made it less, as I said, less uh, black and white, and so for me, following the traditions of opera, which is a child avenging a parent, but it being the daughter avenging a mother, um, and it being the daughter's hand that with the knife strikes down the father rather than the son felt like a just a nod in the direction of well Debussy said you can do things slightly differently in opera and as a tribute to him I will do it slightly differently as well we're making Debussy the great feminist ahead of his yeah, time. I, I, I feel that would really be a hard one even for me to say <laughs> <laughs> and yet what he created despite as I say the, tra- the, the traumatic sort of birth if you like of the opera um, for him and the problems he had with it with as you say that the the blurred edges what he then did create was something that's now being held up as one of the one of the achievements in French musical history. Yes, yes. And there's another great lesson for all of us who, um, you know, toil away at the rock face of <laughs> writing or indeed composing or choreography, any of the those areas, is that the worth of something when you're creating it, and I say this to myself as a writer um, all the time, is all you can do is do your best as a creator because in the end, time will tell. And you might not get 
what you hope for when it first comes out, when it's first heard, when it's first published. It, you know, the great Anita Bruckner, late Anita Bruckner, once said that being published is like having a layer of skin removed. And I'm sitting, you know, ahead of a big publication at the moment, and that's what it feels like. It, you, you feel that everything that you've hoped for and you feel you've done, you're handing it over into the hands of others, and they might not like it. And it makes you think you might not have done what you feel you've achieved. But all you can do as a creator is know that you did your best and draw a line under that. So with Debussy, there was nothing more important to him than having an opera that was celebrated and there and achieved. And the first couple of reviews were snitty. And it's nothing to do with the music. It's to do with all the feuds that he was involved in, all of the way of jealousy, you know, the critics were feeling inched out and therefore they weren't going to go along with this new modern malarkey. You know, Debussy had been a wild young thing, part of the bohemians challenging the academy, but now he was a bit older and he was still doing it Mm. and they didn't like that either. But then, of course, almost straight away, people started to say, this is a work of unparalleled genius. And of course, then it was revived almost every year at the Opera Comique, right up until the First World War. It started to have uh, performances everywhere. I think the Royal Opera House, I think was 1909 over here, but all over the world. Um, And it has remained a beacon ever since. So for me, there are two things there. One, that it is this great piece of work and everybody now can see it in the with hindsight and the context of history and musical history and criticism but also for me as a writer on the other side of the fence it's always a good reminder time will tell you know the audience has spoken it's there now and it ranks rightly as one of the world's great operas I love hearing you talk about Debussy and this is probably nothing for the podcast but but, uh, just because for me learning the piano it, it was exactly the same the Chopin was just too big yeah and Debussy managed to be, it was challenging and hard, some of it, but it was had a simplicity about it that you could kind of understand as a 13-year-old or a 14-year-old, yeah, so you're sort yeah. of battling through six flats, whatever. Yes, but, you yes. know, but, but, and, and you sort of, the, but there was still a lovely sense of achievement because it was so pretty. And, it was, you know, and, yes. it, and, and even though it's much more than that, it, it was lovely music for a young teenager to play because it was just very, just beautiful. Yes, it is beautiful to play. And there, there are two lessons um, for those of us who banged our way through, you know, <laughs> Claire de Lune, <laughs> driving our parents mad or whatever, um, is that firstly, the purity of, of, of how simple it seems is a complete shimmer. So to understand, without even understanding at the time that this is the lesson being learned, that Debussy is achievable for a middling pianist but almost impossible for anybody but a great pianist. Yeah. So for yeah. me, Martino Torimo, um, the, the, the great Cypriot pianist, it's his recordings of the books of preludes and that I, that I list, go back to. He, he, for me, he is the one. Um, and it's, it's just that thing that, yeah, lots of us can play it, but almost nobody can actually yes. play it. Yeah. So that old-fashioned creative thing that you're always told in, you know, whether you're a writer or a painter or whatever, less is more. Mm. Debussy exemplifies that. But secondly, and I'm very... Um, I really dislike terms like masculine and feminine in, in the context of the art because I think a lot of that is contextualising and what's valued and all of these things. Having said that, it's pleasing... There is a femininity 
to the storytelling within Debussy, which is about it's utterly legitimate to tell the story of what it might feel like, not look like, but feel like, to glimpse in a beautiful Brittany glade a doe or a fawn standing there in a shaft of sunlight, that that is everything. That is big enough for a piece of creativity. It doesn't have to be the 1812 overture. And that's, I suppose, what I mean by masculine and feminine. And I think that's one of the reasons that although Debussy's personal life was very torrid and he had, you know, various affairs and, of course, Lily Texier, uh, you know, tried to kill herself and there's all, you know, there's his life is operatic. Um, but at the same time, I would say that Debussy did love women, you know, right back to his rather fierce and probably extremely horrible mother, that he had a sensibility that was... He didn't dismiss the domestic. He didn't dismiss the delicate. And I think that's one of the reasons that so many of us came to him as teenagers, because they gave voice to our our growing up parts. Our growing yes. up parts. I think that's absolutely true. There was a sort of an innocence about it and yet of the romance as well that you sort of glimpsed. Yes. And the, <laughs> as you were beginning to glimpse it in real life as well. That's right. Yeah. And that actually, of course, you know, the girl with the flaxen hair. Well, that's enough just to describe a girl with flaxen hair. And I think that, you know, it's the devil is in the detail. And so everything about Debussy is so... Um, within reach, and many of his pieces, you know, they're almost all named, um, which is am amazing. You know, they're not number one, number two, number three, number four, um, but it could be a fireworks display. It could be what it seems like, uh, you know, uh, uh, as the sun comes up. It, you know, there are lots of tributes to other composers, and but it, it's all, it's all the world that any of us could imagine. It isn't the Western Front, Napoleon's army, mm. you know. And I think that is, again, the fact that he achieved and is so important, but did it from the point of view where most of us sit, is an amazing thing. Thank you for listening to this Glyndebourne podcast. The music you've been listening to is taken from the 1963 recording of Pelias et Melisande by Glyndebourne Productions Limited. Music is by kind permission of G Recordion Co. London Limited. Vittorio Gui conducted the Royal Philharmonic Orchestra. Pelias was sung by Hans Wilbrink. Denise Duval was Melisande. Golo was sung by Michel Roux, with Anna Reynolds as Geneviève. Hus Hökman as Arkel, Josine Bredi as Inyo, and John Shirley Quirk in the role of the Doctor. And, of course, the Glyndebourne Chorus. My thanks to Kate Moss for dropping by for this podcast, and you can find out more about Pelias et Melisande in our podcast dedicated to the opera by scrolling through the episodes in our feed. You can also delve deep into our back catalogue of podcasts, which zoom in on the exquisite beauty of opera by composers ranging from Mozart to Britain, from Strauss to Brett Dean. I'm Katie Derham, and I would be delighted if you'd join me again. <laughs>